You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we are talking development management with one of Perth's top development managers. She's got her own consultancy these days. It's Danielle Davison from Davison Advisory Services. Danielle, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I thought we would start the conversation like we do with a lot of uh, experts in the industry. We're just getting a bit of an understanding of how you got to where you are today. For all those young people listening, looking up to you, want to be you one day, uh, where does it start and what are those stepping stones so we can have a bit of confidence that people are on the right path to one day make an influence in this industry like you do? Yeah, sure. Well, I started out 25 years ago as a civil engineer. I started out with a company called Sinclair Knight Moods doing land development project management, which after only a couple of years, uh, Macquarie Bank approached me and asked if I would come and work client side. They were essentially a client of ours at the time. So I left there and became a land development development manager. And that was a great time because that was in the boom back then in 2007 in yeah. Perth. Um, Everything stacked up. Yeah, it was very easy to hide all sins. I did that for a few years and then I went to the UK thinking that I would do land development over there. Naively didn't realise that I don't have any land in, <laughs> in London. <laughs> so I, um, I became development manager of a number of projects but mainly commercial offices and luxury residential. We built a cantilevered building over two live train stations. So wow. that was Cannon Street Station in, in the city of London. So it was a really, it was a £200 million project that one. So I was 2IC on that one. A lot of development management's the same. It's a process and so whether that's apartments or commercial. Um, I was there for nearly five years and then wanted to have a family. So I came back to Australia with a job secured with Fraser's or Australand at the time. Mm. I took over their Port Coogee project and it's a $2 billion project, that one, which is everything. It's a marina, it's land, it's apartments, it's retail, mm. it's, it's everything. It's still developing really, isn't it? Yeah, they're doing the peninsula now. So yeah, it's a 20-year project, that one. So it's almost finished. Really only apartments left now. Just off the cuff there talking about Port Coogee. How do you cost up a marina? Not many people have done it. Not many people would have any idea what it costs to dredge a marina out and make sure that the water table is not too high when you're finished and get all these channels really built, right? Where does that come from? What support do you need? Uh, the right consultants, really. And there's always consultants that have done it somewhere else that will draw on that knowledge. Ironically, it wasn't my first marina because I worked on Mindari Marina as an engineer. Oh, there you go. So <laughs> we have more marinas than people realise yeah. in Perth and there's more still coming. So, And that's, again, same for all asset classes, having worked on all of them now, finding the right teams. Even in London, we used Arab in Perth. So, you know, somewhere someone in the world has done what you're doing, no matter how difficult. And you would say doing a cantilevered building over a live train station is unique and yet there was someone that had done it somewhere else before that we could draw on so yeah that's fantastic and look now you're in a position where you run your own consultancy you generate your own work from around the country talk to us about some of those projects you've been involved in over the last couple of years and are currently pushing through after leaving Fraser's I went to ABN group and very much just focused on apartments and I think a lot of the time since then and that was 2015 a lot of my time has been spent in that built form apartment space rather than the asset classes once I left there and became a consultant really I did the same thing but essentially for hire so 
predominantly getting approvals, um, highest and best use for a site. So looking at a site and saying what kind of apartments, what sizing, what specification, who's the buyer going to be, what price should it be? Because that's really the bit where a lot of developers fall down. They, they've got the demographic wrong or they've priced it wrong, designed mm. it wrong. So I spend a lot of time for various clients doing that. Some sites I will manage once they start, once they start construction and I've got staff that will pick that up. My skill set is predominantly in that strategic setting up of a project review another one of the roles I do is for um, a funder so doing pre-lending checks so the same thing but in reverse so somebody else has got a project they want to go ahead with and checking that loan Due to value. exactly yeah. yeah is what this developer says it is is it worth as much as it is and what hurdles are there that maybe they haven't told us about yeah and I mean in that case that lender is a second tier lender and you know usually the people coming to them are coming because they can't get finance well, through first it. First. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're usually a little bit whiffier anyway and you know quite often they, they don't stay well, let's talk about stacking. Mm. Right. We're in a market at the moment in West Australia where there is a huge pent-up demand for infill products. We've got transaction numbers that are pretty much double what they were consistently to three years ago. But the real issue in our market is supply. And supply seems to be the thing we had, as I said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, we had Colleen Gandini and from Applecross saying that the market's absolutely kicking along. But the one thing that might be holding it back is there's not enough supply to suit the preferences of buyers in the market. If there were more amazing houses, they'd be going within days, but mm. they just aren't. Now, we talk about the developments that you manage. A lot of those are luxury apartments, broader medium density apartments as well. How many of those as a percentage do you think that have been approved in the last couple of years are actually getting off the ground at the moment? In West Australia at the moment, I would say almost all of them have just gone on hold or about to go on hold. And that is simply because the construction cost has made them unviable for the short term. So once revenue increases that will change but I guess we've talked before you know offline about this daisy chain effect that's going on where effectively everybody's a little bit locked at the moment and something has to change to enable people because you know if for the revenue to go up we need people that want to buy them but those homes have got to be ready to move into so people are going to immigrants are going to come from the east or from overseas they need somewhere to stay and buying off the plan here isn't going to get them that property not in the short term not in the short term so then you go well we need the existing stock to become available and then you know so what can be done about creating banks won't fund it unless there's pre-sales yeah exactly so six months ago those same clients were saying we're going to punt it we're going to go ahead they didn't need bank debt so they could self-fund they were going to go ahead with a hedge basically they were going to just lock in a build price start building and hedge that once they got to the end the revenues would have appreciated enough so there'd be some escalation the problem is in the last six months we've seen a further increase in construction cost and that's changed the view because we're now talking you know what we were talking oh gosh construction prices are up 20 percent they're now at 30s and 40s for some projects Mm. so depending on what your construction methodology was and nobody is expecting there to be that much escalation so certainly we haven't seen escalation in the apartments like we have the housing and we expect that that'll catch up there's a lag there but it can't catch up if there's nothing to sell that's the point right and you talk about that daisy chain that chicken and egg situation we get to the end of this year and we're probably nine months past the lowest land sale 
numbers West Australia has seen in decades, mm-hmm. which is emergency level land sale problem, but uh, no one's talking about it because everyone's still too busy dealing with the work they got right now yeah. for it to become a problem that the state government becomes aware of. Uh, and the only way to solve that at the end of the day is having more people have more confidence in the building industry because you won't buy land unless you have confidence in building. Yes. What's going to happen out of that from my perspective is most of our projects are going on hold on a built form level. From a residential level, they're all getting filtered through right now. We're at, you know, I think we're in the darkest before the dawn time where you get nine months after that March quarter number of the lease sale sales ever relative to population Bricky's going to start asking for work by the end of the year in my opinion yeah. and uh, that's the start of the chain the concrete and bricky guys are the first ones you start hearing it from yeah. we can't do a lot about steel and timber given their global issues but the rest of it i think starts to fall away pretty quickly and i think having the finger on the pulse to be one of those earlier guys to press the green button as a built form developer you, you nearly miss that next wave of people who are all pent up waiting to build i think it's that whole supply and demand thing though like we need to get to complete crisis point mm. before escalation in revenues is going to make us have confidence to press that button. What's happening in Brisbane? So I've heard not from just from you, from a number of people that, yes, there are escalations in prices, but mm. the market is also adjusting with it along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a project, 200 apartments that we're looking to lodge for planning shortly. It's already got a DA, but we've decided to go ahead with a different strategy. So we're monitoring all the competing stock nearby and have been for the last 12 months just to see what's selling, what's not selling. And you know we're seeing price lists, so just a competing development around the corner. We're, they're on the sixth version of their price list and they've seen you know price increases for the same apartment of $80,000 in a year the same apartment so they're definitely seeing it and that's and they've definitely seen increases in construction cost so what we're seeing there is you know they're releasing staged releases of apartments now so that they can continually keep ramping that price control up. revenues control yeah. the narrative yeah and maybe get to a revenue point back to what they initially thought it was going to be back in the day just at a higher price point overall exactly yeah it's still i mean and don't get me wrong it's still really challenging like we're on our fifth version of trying to get this project over there to stack and 200 apartments should be reasonably easy to stack but there's other things there with you know policy that they require two car bays per apartment so that Minotalks basements, but that's a whole other story. But it's still barely viable, but it, there's there's a chance, whereas here there's just no chance. Why? Because the increase in construction cost far exceeds anyone's profit margins and any increase in revenue that we're likely to see. And you think that's more of a mindset thing? I think that there's always been at least the last few years in Perth nearly a self-defeating attitude where developers say, oh, we couldn't possibly expect these prices and therefore buyers also say well, we couldn't possibly justify paying these prices but at the end of the day repa- replacement cost is a real thing if you're not mm. going to pay for this what are you going to buy because no one's going to give it to you cheaper yeah and at some point you're going to have to pay it so it seems like there's nearly this mexican standoff going on in western australia where we're all kicking ourselves in the in the guts really and not actually having a punt going well yeah i know that two bedroom apartments have been selling for five hundred thousand dollars for eight years mm. but now it's six hundred that's where the market is. It's the same thing that property in Morley would sell for four hundred and fifty. Now it's five fifty, six hundred. Yeah. It's, it's it's funny how in the established market of land based products, dwelling you know, four by twos, for example, you see a much more fluid pricing change based on demand and supply. But suddenly there has to be some sort of fixed price basis for built form off the plan apartments. Have you noticed it's a different mindset? Yes and no. I think I think there's other factors though. Like there, there's no clear solution though because the other issue we're facing is there isn't a big queue of people lining up to buy apartments yet. And that's why I say we need to hit crisis point. We need a big 
big queue of people that will then drive escalation. At the moment, there's nothing driving escalation because the unintended consequence of the government, state and federal, those grants that they bought out, they actually robbed Peter to pay Paul. They sucked they demand com- away from they the They completely took away from yeah. the apartment. So buyers, young ones, first home buyers that would have bought an apartment, even if they're not going to live in it. I know young ones that have bought that 4 by 2 in Valdivis. They don't intend to live there because their parents live in Shenton Park. Mm. They'll continue to live at home. But they bought because it was such a good deal. And then I guess the other elements too affecting us so separate to that um, is it, interest rates now going up so that people are now becoming afraid to buy. And mm. so with this perfect storm of things, just when we might have seen a recovery in apartment values – we're now seeing more things working against us. And then add to that, we're now seeing local authorities here in Perth claiming on the um, bus of wanting public open space contributions for any apartment sites yeah. or dwelling. And so that now they want to take 10% of the land buy value as well. At so the worst time. There's only so many things that a project can handle and we can't handle the construction cost alone, let alone the lack of demand, let alone the lack of escalation. And then you've got policy drivers pushing us and interest rates. Can we talk further about that? POS space. I mm. think it's been driven by uh, a movement within the local government planning society, it seems, mm. where they see this and go, oh, this is a good idea. We can mm. not only get money out of the triplex developer in the city of Stirling, we know we can also get money out of the apartment developer in the city of Netherlands. Unfortunately, it really doesn't seem to have much logic at all because at the end of the day, a developer has to pass that on to buyers mm. and all it's going to do is artificially inflate costs and make it even harder to get people into infill products. Yeah, and it defeats the purpose. Public open space was about providing public, public open, open space. space. Not paying for parks and, and rec pools of money. Well, that's the land developer's already done that. They've re- there's a second bite at the cherry. Yeah. So, you know, and we are providing open space within our developments usually, private open space as is required. So we're getting hit internally and then we're getting hit externally. And it is. It, it is just a money grab because that we're not. they're I not doing anything with it. It's totally it is, unconscionable. What can we do about it as an industry, though? Obviously, Rita Safiotti is the one who makes the decisions here. It seems like this is happening under her nose. Yeah. I've broached this with her personally a couple of years ago. It didn't seem to be something that seemed to be too much of a concern to her, but it's structurally having big issues on the feasibility of developments that otherwise may have stacked up. Well, I know Cottesloe have just turned around, as it's not just Netherlands, Cottesloe have just turned around to a client and said, we'll take 10%. It was a $10 million land purchase. So they've said, we'll take 10%. So that's a million dollars. That, that could be half of a developer's profit margin. And they otherwise wouldn't have gone ahead if they knew that that was going to be no, happening. And no. what I'm hearing as well is that they're making these demands at the end of a development. Holding your ransom for your occupancy permits. Yeah. yeah. So you so you can buy a site and it not be the case and it'll get sprung on you later. Now, how can you possibly account for that? And again, notwithstanding the fact that it's terrible timing, as you say, it's un- Conscionable planning. It should be clear what is the purpose of public open space contributions to provide public open space. So when Cottesloe is saying we're going to take that money, where are they going to go create a new well, open space? I've heard, for example, I've heard the city of Canning say this to me directly that oh, you know, as it's actually it's in their it's in one of their draft policies that they're going to take the money and buy a whole bunch of residential houses to make a new park. That's never going to happen. <laughs> They're never, ever going to go spend the next 20, 30 years acquiring yeah. some contiguous yeah. sites. When we have a housing shortage. Well, especially, right? <laughs> what, where, who is making these decisions and yeah. rationalising them? I am aware the Property Council is really pushing hard on it. I think industry just needs to continue to push and it needs to be escalated. And this is the whole point. These policymakers are not understanding that you cannot squeeze something from every single side and expect that it won't burst. Yeah. What it does is it lets, lets us segue into red tape, right? Mm. My experience in the market in the last few years is that there's certainly been both from a council-led and also a city-led perspective 
a lot more red tape to get through to get things up. A lot more people with a lot more opinions. Yeah. Uh, a lot more rules, obviously. Some of them are certainly justifiable, but others seem to really just be holding things up for the sake of it, for the sake of justifying yeah. uh, policies or positions. And in addition to the market fo- to market forces, that has also been a reason for a stymieing of infill supply. Absolutely. I mean, my last three projects that I got development approvals for, all three had Supreme Court actions against JDAP taken, one of which was lodged by the local authority. (laughs) So there you go, that's farcical. The local authority is going to take JDAP to court. Like, that's that's absurd. And for something that was on a R100 site, only providing 62 apartments. So, you know, you go, hang on, that's R100. It's it's meant to have density. There needs to be a remit coming down from the state government, in my opinion, that if we're going to be serious about urban infrastructure, like they've just put in with Keystart having its own urban infill product finally it should go further and be at the expense of of urban expansion products in my opinion but if the state government's going to be really serious about this they need to have a mandate down to the local governments that we should be finding ways to actually promote further density providing bonuses on height for excellence in green spaces and green performance right Uh, yes this is a R60 site that's three stories high but if you do this and this we'll give you a fourth floor because who does it hurt well, but this is the point, though. So JDAP, you know, the conversation we were having before we started our podcast today, that JDAP have become so afraid of being taken to court that they're now erring on the side of the NIMBYs. Mm. And as opposed to being brave, being bold, and knowing that they've got the support of Rita Safiotti and the ministers to be bold and get planning approved, get projects approved. Have courage. Exactly. Yeah. But they're not. And that's why I say the last three projects, it's JDAP that gets taken to court. We don't have third-party rights of appeal here in WA. So JDAP can be taken to court as an error of law or error of judgment for the discretion that they take. So as, as you're seeing yourself, they're now too afraid to take discretion. Where, you know, there's numerous, again, that site that I was talking about, R100, opposite a train station, directly over the road from a train station on a major arterial road. And because we asked for an additional setback level that couldn't see anyone, didn't overshadow anyone, they wanted to take them to court for 62 apartments. Yeah. So it's absurd. It's contrary to state policy. It's absolutely it's contrary to it. the best outcomes for all of us as a population. We should be doing everything we can to promote urban infill yeah. at the expense of clearing more and more land on our fringes to house people that need to come in here to work. There's only one way to do it, it's to go in from now. It's not a good thing yeah. that we have the record to, of being the largest city in the world. Yeah. But do you know what? This is a bit of a sidestep, but something that, you know, while well, I've got the microphone, I wanna I wanna say it would help is, you know, plot ratio. We should do away with plot ratio because it is one of the things that when we go for planning, we're getting whacked over the head with. Mm. You're exceeding plot ratio. No, you can't have it. You're exceeding plot ratio. What does it achieve to have a plot ratio? We don't. They don't have plot ratio over east. If you've got an envelope, let us do what we need to do to get the project to stack within an envelope. Do away. Like you can't. You don't need both. I've had scenarios where I can have up to six stories, but I've run out of plot ratio by the fourth. Exactly, and so have I. Exactly. So do away with it. And so, and the reason I say do away with it in the context of this conversation is because it's one less thing for them to whack us over the head with. Mm. It's unnecessary and they use it as a, it's downcoding by stealth almost. So it's an R100 site, but we're only going to give you the you know the, the plot ratio of this. Well, then I can't actually get high density on it because I run out of plot ratio. Yeah. And you've got a militant little planner that's not going to let you get it through. Yeah, I've experienced exactly the same thing. Yep. It's, if you're not going to get hit by setbacks or height, it's plot ratio anyway. Yep. Something they is, make sure they get you one something way. Something is limiting you. And let's think about, you know, look, look on a map. The guy's 
parents in um over east they're absolutely loving right now places like hall's head right mm -hmm. and and i love hall's head the way it is too but isn't it interesting how hall's head has been a canal system holiday area in western australia for years and i'm not I'm not suggesting that the best outcome would be to do this but the equivalent over east would be the gold coast mm. which is littered with 20 30 story apartment buildings overlooking water bases yeah and we have two-story houses as a maximum because for some reason our planning system is based on limiting height mm. the whole issue here is it's counterintuitive it's contrary yeah. to the idea of urban infill you can't promote urban infill and limit you need height. To go up yeah if you're going to have something that's three stories or five stories high if you can mitigate things like overshadowing, if that's an issue for neighbours, what does a seventh or eighth story actually do as a negative outcome for the community? Yeah. As long as traffic's sorted, as long as parking's sorted, what what is the actual issue here? Yeah. Well, it's the rules. Yeah. Well, what have we achieved today? Nothing. Even when you have the opportunity to rewrite the rules, as I did on Sorrento, getting the activity centre structure plan approved there. So we were permitted as a right three storeys and I went for six storeys and we had everybody up in arms saying, oh, you're creating a Gold Coast on our coast here for six storeys. Yeah. I showed them a 40-storey <laughs> Gold Coast and said, that's a 40-storey tower. That's what's on the Gold Coast. We're talking six here. Get a grip. So I only got five approved by the WAPC. So once again, the decision-making powers haven't got the balls to actually be bold and go you know and i said you've got one chance here yeah. one chance yeah, to it's a generational decision yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's I mean, that's the thing because there's lack of courage it's compromise yeah compromise compromise where really there was no benefit in the compromise let's actually build something that's future proof for the next three yeah. generations but increased rather. density exactly rather than uh, we could go on about this for yeah. hours let's push forward into the next 12 months mm -hmm. what's the landscape in the urban infill space look like to you honestly i think it's going to be very quiet very quiet. I think if all you do is apartment development, you're going to find yourself with nothing to do for the next 12 months. It's going to be a real lull. It's not the first lull. Like We're seeing it at the moment. If you look at an awards at the moment, no one has entered the category for high density. And you go, well, why is that? And you go, well, because actually if it takes two years to build something high density and two years to pre-sell it, what was happening four years ago? Nothing. Four years yeah. ago, we were doing donuts. No one was selling anything because there was no buyers. So we're, we're going to have another one of that. So there's going to be nothing. The buyers... They either are afraid to buy because of interest rates or they're afraid to buy because they don't know if the project will go ahead or they're afraid to buy because they're worried the builder will go broke. Yep, that's what's happening at the Fear residential contagion. level as well. Yep, not, not just in the built forms. Yes, absolutely. So I think the next 12 months, we're not going to see much. We're going to see a lot of sitting on our hands and a lot of waiting to see what's going to happen. You're going to have developers. There are definitely developers out there buying land, mm. land banking. There's not bargains out there to be had, but I guess most people, if they're smart, are getting approvals now. So they've got approvals ready to go. So when the market does come back, so there is work out there. But as far as construction activity and development activity, I think it's going to be very quiet for the next 12 months. Yeah, this is the interesting thing. People speak to our market being a boom and bust market because of the mining industry. It's actually not because of the mining industry. It's for two reasons, I think. One is because our monetary policy is counterintuitive to our market, which mm. is generally countercyclical to the East Coast. Yeah. And secondly, because of things like this, we have such restrictive planning situations where no one builds apartments for years and then everyone builds apartments in the space for two, three years in that tiny gap where it actually yeah. might stack up <laughs> and then we're oversupplied again. Yep. Yeah. And then therefore the ass falls out of the market. Yeah, because stop, go, stop, If go. you couldn't pre-sell your whole development in that tiny window that it was open, yeah. you didn't have a massive marketing budget like some of the big guys and get these done. This is a situation where then a developer who's been doing well for 10, 15 years goes broke on one project. Yeah. It's horrible. You don't. I don't think you seem to see that volatility 
in the cycles on the east coast everyone seems to be there always seems to be a pipeline of apartments over there regardless of the market brisbane sees a little bit of it like because it gets too expensive in sydney melbourne they all move to brisbane and then it gets too expensive in brisbane so they move back to sydney melbourne and the jobs i guess and they're still somewhat mining so you do see a little bit of it over there but they have they have overseas attract like interest that we don't have mm. so talk about that project in queensland or brisbane that i've got you know we're expecting to sell 30 percent to offshore channels I can't sell 30% in Perth to offshore channels. Why? Because there's not the interest. Maybe it's not sexy enough. Well, outlook, they go, where's the evidence of the capital growth? Mm. There isn't any. Whereas you go, look at Brisbane, it's gone up 80 grand in 12 months and they're all jumping on board. Yeah. Does it take something like reducing the foreign duty surcharge to get a bit of interest back again? Or do you think that's futile? It might do. The, the problem though with channel sales is, um, and I'm definitely seeing this on the East Coast, that 30%, you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You need those channel sales to get your project off the ground, but they come at a significantly higher commission. So you're, Marketing costs. So yeah, yeah, so you, instead of a 2% commission, you're paying 6% and that's eating into the profit that each one of them makes. And yep. when costs are up, the profit's less. So you want them to help with the overall volume of pre-sales, but you don't want too many. Baseline. Yeah. Exactly. And the banks are capping anyway at how many you can sell offshore. Let's talk about banks. Mm. So again, as always, it seems like the banks have got a, a view that comes straight out of Darling Harbour <laughs> in a time where... I would say we have one of the most, one of the strongest, most resilient forecasts in Perth for a while, uh, despite the crap that comes out of some of the commentators in the East Coast. The banks are listening to those commentators and saying, oh, there's a lot of risk in the market right now. I'm thinking, have you seen the fundamentals in this market? It has never been so tight. It has never had such consistent demand. Yeah. And our interest rates, whilst they are getting less affordable, are way, way far away from unaffordable. Yeah. Where are you seeing the data on Perth, guys? Have you actually looked? And that feeds into the credit availability for developers that aren't in the top 10 developers in Australia. Yeah. I mean, this has always been the problem with East versus West. That's why we've got the chip on our shoulder in the West here because we get dictated to by the East. And when we're booming, they cap us. When we're not booming, they don't help us because they're booming and they don't need the help. So Yeah, we're not sexy enough. Yeah, I remember maybe three years ago, calling a few uh, private lenders, things like that, just getting an idea of where capital might be in, in, in any interest. And there was absolutely zero interest from anyone on the East Coast for anything in Perth. doesn't matter what you have, yeah. we're not interested because they all their capital was tied up making a crap load of money over there. Yeah. So why would they be bothered here? I guess at that point though, the, I do think that they're from, you know, if I look back 20 years, I think there's a lot more private funders based in the West here now. There so, are now, yes. So I think that's what we've got going for. I mean, it doesn't help overall interest rates and things like that, but as far as availability of debt... Not for the mums and dads buying, mind no. you, for the developers. There um, are alternatives out there to the big four who definitely helps. may not be interested in playing ball. Yeah, but as you say, if the mums and dads are afraid to get debt, then we're not selling anything. And well, that's, exactly that's right. where they're fearful because and, and, and even the West newspaper doesn't help because one day it's, you know, doom and gloom, we're all going to die and it's the next confusion, day. It's confusion, mate. It does. It confuses me and if I actually know in, what's happening. Uh, if you just typed in Perth Real Estate right now on Google and clicked on the news tab and you just did a screenshot of your screen. Three of the six articles would say Perth market booming. Yeah. Three of them would say Perth slash national market on the cusp of falling apart. 
Yeah. It's insane. There was an article just the other day in the West that actually within the same article it contradicted itself. It said the head of, I think, RP Data nationally yeah. said that the whole market's going to crash. And then in the next paragraph it said um, it's just a blip and it's only this month. Yeah. And it's like, so hang on, the headline, wait, what? Well, and that's the big issue. You've got Tim Lawler says, this is who you're referring to probably, who, again, pandering to the East Coast conversation, not actually taking a serious look at Western Australia. And then you've got people like Damien Collins at Ariwa championing Western Australia because he actually understands what's going on here. Yeah. And you're supposed to have the mum and dad uh, readers understand who to listen to and who to actually believe. Well, I can tell you straight away, anyone from the East Coast that you listen to talking about national housing prices or even trying to talk to Perth prices, don't even bother. No. Listen to Western Australians who understand what's going on on the ground right now. Yeah. Well, this is the problem with having only one source of news, isn't it? And that it news is. is not helpful. I think it struggles in that obviously it's a news space where they want headlines. So anything that's good or bad, they'll Quickly. they'll publish. Yeah. There seems to be less real conscientiousness to actually get the story correct yeah. about what's actually going on. Yeah. Uh, that, look, that's news these days, right? It is. But you know what? It's not all bad news. So one thing I do think that there's still a lot of room for and it's still happening and it will continue to happen in the next 12 months is I think the land is going to calm down but it's going to continue to be strong. I think apartments are going to get mothballed for a little while. But the medium density, the townhouses, that sector is still really strong. Yes. It is selling really well. There is confidence in it. People are still buying and builders are still building. And I think that is the one sector that I'm encouraging clients to look at. If you've got a piece of land, look at pivot. Pivot and do some um, some townhouses. You can guarantee that you're going to sell them in this market. Mm. You'll still get some... There's escalation in that pricing because house pricing is up 20%. Well, yeah, townhouses are up exactly the same. Exactly. I, I would so, say it's more like 30-ish percent. But yeah, and those uh, trades will point. become available as the houses are, are coming off. So I, I think it's not all doom and gloom. And credit's available to this sort of stuff, right? Exactly. So credit's not really available to a lot of the larger built form, but it's certainly if you're doing two, three, four townhouses on a yep. quarter acre block or a sixth of an acre, if your project stacks... You don't need pre-sales. You can go to a bank and get these things yeah. funded, right? Um, and that is the alternative. So when you talk about, well, we don't have the built form apartments coming, which is generally the downsizer option. Well, buyers who are needing to downsize still need an option. So instead of going to that apartment because they have no confidence in waiting two years till it's done, yeah. they'll go and buy a townhouse that's already built. And you don't need pre-sales generally to go and build a townhouse. And there's and get some certainty on timing there too, because yep. with apartments you don't know when are they going to start, when are they going to get their pre-sales, when are they going to start mm. on site, when is it going to be finished? And it's the same conundrum. And this is I've said this a couple of times in the podcast. It is exactly the same conundrum in the property market right now as it is with the motor vehicle market. People pay more for a second-hand vehicle they can drive away today than yeah. they do for a brand new vehicle that they have to wait nine months for. Certainty. It's the same thing in housing, right? Yeah. Yeah. They need people who people still need shelter, and that's something that one thing we haven't spoken about at the end of the day. Housing is a basic need, yeah. right? People need shelter, and as more and more people come in, as more people grow up every year, there's more people entering this market. If it is near on impossible to find a rental, which it is in Western Australia at the moment with a vacancy rate of 0.6%, if you ask domain, then uh, they have to buy. That's what pushes this market to continue to have a very solid 900 and something transactions a week. And remember, the boom had 800 transactions a week, Daniel. That was the mm. boom, 800 transactions a week. We're at 900 and people are calling it, Yeah. right? It's insane, right? The second I start seeing transactions drop down to 600 or I start seeing supply or market pick up to 12,000 or the vacancy rate pick up to 2 or 3%, we'll have a chat yeah. about how this market is falling Tanking. away. Yeah. But we're that far from that, it's does my head in. Let's tie this conversation up with trying to have some solutions. 
obviously pointed out a lot of problems today, but let's point, let's talk about solutions. The government's the one that's got to step up up here. Obviously, we've talk, spoken about themes of POS and supporting infield developers. I've touched on Keystart and how they've already done something there, which is great. Uh, but what we really need is obviously what, what's happening regardless of whether we need it or not is immigration. Yeah. To have immigration, they need someone to live. Do we have any solutions here? Yeah, well, I mean, the quarantine, <laughs> yeah. that's not a permanent solution. And I, I still worry about how socially that would work. But, I mean, there, there are definitely, there are so many houses around Perth. It's a, it's a mind-blowing statistic of um, one one occupant, four five-bedroom houses. Now, those are typically downsizers and they can't move or they won't move because they don't want to pay stamp duty. And so if they can be encouraged to move through stamp duty relief or incentivization somehow, um, or if investors can be encouraged to buy those properties and rent those rooms out. So there is there there is no issue with beds or bedroom shortages in Perth. There is an issue with housing shortage. Mm. So if all of those bedrooms could become available for share houses, um, not all of them, but if a proportion of them could become available, then we would have a solution. And it's not the only solution. There's many solutions. But I think there are definitely ways of unlocking all those asset-rich, cash-poor downsizers that don't want to move because they don't want to lose all their money in stamp duty or waste money. It's wasted money and it can be a lot of money. So I think that more could be done there to encourage downsizers to move on. Yeah, I, I think it'd be a great marketing program to essentially say, are you living in a 300 square meter house all by yourself? How about joining this emigration program where you, you know, we'll pay you 300 Absolutely. bucks a week for yep. someone to stay in the house? You know, I, as I grew up, I remember f- parents of my friends that would have Asian students living in their house for a bit of extra cash. It doesn't seem like we obviously we've forgotten to do that these days. Yeah, the government could create a billeting program Mm. for billeting, and and so and everyone's got this negative connotation about you know taking on social housing in their home, and I understand that, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about educated workers that have been cleared by the government to come and work in our country so get them get them home so exactly if the government were to run a billeting program where people were incentivized to take in lodges i think you'd find we've got a lot one of the many solutions required danielle davison appreciate the chat mate it's been you know absolute punchy i love it a lot of great opinions that i share 100 percent. thank you so much and uh, hopefully have you in again with some uh, more rosy news about how this market is progressing <laughs> i look forward to it thanks for having me Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!